Any thoughts of what the word intentional means for you? I think intentional has to do with saying, okay, what is the domain that I'm operating within? How do I develop the knowledge and the skill sets to operate within that domain? Then set a goal and travel down that path to get there within the domain knowledge. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. How's it going, everybody? I appreciate you tuning back in. We are going to be diving into an episode today about corporate divestitures, but quick announcement before we do. We have the Intentional Growth Boot Camp that is in Orlando, Florida on May 11th and 12th. That is a Thursday and Friday at Rollins College. It is $5,000 for the first ticket and half off afterwards. And this is going to be a two-day deep dive on how to view and run the company like a financial asset. We have the case studies of Summit and Jordan with $10 million in revenue, a million in EBITDA. And we weave those two case studies throughout the two days where we're teaching about valuations, deal structures, net proceeds, all five exits like ESOPs, private equity, internal transfers. And then we jump into finance strategy and how to project out the value of your business so you can truly get that target equity valuation clear and you have an idea of what you need to do in order to go get that. So please go check out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp at arcona.io. I've got a bootcamp trailer along with the agenda and a bunch of videos that you can check out. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me. It's wonderful for partnerships. It's wonderful for ownership and leadership to go get aligned in the long-term goal and a great way just truly to get everybody on the same page. So that leads us into today's episode with John Walker from Prairie Capital Advisors. He's a, a recent new team member to Prairie Capital Advisors and John has spent decades into decades in the corporate merger and acquisition divestiture space. So what a corporate divestiture is when a bigger corporation is going to sell off a product, a division, a location of their company, and they're doing it for various reasons. So John's going to be on the show today to talk about what are those reasons and then how do these companies value the asset that they want to sell and what would drive that value and why I think this is so relevant to the listeners of our show is that because as middle market companies, we're dealing with bigger corporations, whether they're our customers, whether they're our suppliers or manufacturers. We deal with bigger corporations most often, whether we like it or not. And so if we know what's going on behind the scenes and we pay attention to the signals, we might be able to catch opportunities to buy a corporate divestiture, maybe at a good price, enhance your business, de-risk your cash flow, but also I think just paying attention to this stuff will help you understand what are the dynamics of these vendors, customers, suppliers, whatever it might be, because the M&A going on behind the scenes will most likely impact your relationship with them, whatever it is. So if you don't are not aware of what might be going on or why, then it's difficult to plan out your future strategies at the company. Again, I think the whole point of this is getting up here into what goes on, the conversations and the why, and John has got decades of experience to share with us. So I'm very appreciative of John, his perspective, and him coming on the show to share his story about the world of corporate divestitures and what that might mean for the rest of the privately held middle market. 
You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace, and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash. The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long-term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want but what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Good morning, John, how are you, sir? Hey, Ryan, I'm great. Good morning to you. Looking forward to this conversation. I was uh, super excited when Wendy reached out and she was like, hey, she was listening to the podcast I did with Dave, and she's like, we got to get John on the podcast. We talk about corporate divestitures. You got a different uh, flavor for M&A, the place that you've uh, been playing in. And after 340-some podcast episodes, I'm like, I don't think we've covered that. So, like, what a great idea. So, awesome. I'm very – I appreciate you being here. And uh, for the listeners, why don't you just give a little of your background, how you ended – you know, kind of the cliff note version, how you got to Prairie and what you've been doing, what you've been doing prior to joining Prairie. Sure. So I've been at Prairie for about two years, but I've been doing sell-side mergers and acquisitions work for, uh, dare I say it, getting close to 30 years now. Um, I've worked at some bigger firms and some smaller firms. Um, I guess early in my career, I really learned how to do this sort of work uh, at a firm that's now called Lincoln International. Got about 800 people. Um, and here we have about 60 people in total doing sell-side M&A. Um, I should say 60 people in total in the firm, uh, about a dozen or so of us that work on um, mergers and acquisitions type transactions. And just to put the context on it, generally we work on transactions that are about 100 million in value and below, although we've certainly done larger transactions than that. And when you're talking about that, just for the listeners too, the 12 people, you're talking about the sell side of like third party because you guys are a big ESOP shop, right? Is that right? So you're, right. you're talking, those people are devoted to selling to third party entities that are outside of the ESOP. Right, right. 
Right. So in total, we'll do 50 transactions, maybe 60 transactions a year. Um, a good portion of those are on the ESOP side. Got it. Awesome. So let's uh, let's jump into your background because you you had a unique spin to where you came from and where you've played in the M&A space over the last 30 years, correct? <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I finished graduate school in uh, 1995, actually moved overseas um, into southwestern Poland as a as part of a program that was part of the State Department. Huh. And, and I bring that up a lot lately because of the war in Ukraine. You know, I was yeah, only, very relevant. Yeah. yeah, I was only about two hour car ride or two hour train ride, probably maybe three uh, from the Ukrainian border. And it was just after the fall of communism. Wow. Um, so I think I've got kind of a unique perspective on some things from that after spending the year uh, in country, as we say. Um, but when I came back from that, I started working in mergers and acquisitions, um, and I've been doing it ever since. Hmm. And, and let's do you want to jump right into like, what is a corporate divestiture? I mean, even like, because when I say that you've been playing in a different space in the M&A, I think a lot of people think of, oh, a business owner or owners want to go sell their company. If it's not an internal, they go sell it to a third party strategic or private equity firm. And that's kind of from the listeners, if they're selling it, it would be like that. Or they, you know, a lot of people think about a strategic buyer or private equity firm and kind of just stays there. But you've been playing over in this area where people are divesting or selling a division or a company or something that's just, I think a lot of people that would be tuning in aren't familiar with that space. So like, sure. you want to maybe get, give us a little bit of color and what kind of just set the landscape? Yeah. So maybe there's a handful of different types of transactions. And, you know, I'm kind of talking about my world. There's other things in different worlds. But in my world, like you were saying there, Ryan, there are transactions where it's, you know, privately held company. Maybe it's been in the family for a decade or, 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 or seven decades. And you think about selling the business. And, yeah, you'll contact private equity or a strategic acquirer. We can come back to define what a strategic acquirer is. And that is a company sale. We do that all the time. It's a very large portion of what we do. What our discussion today is really about is corporate divestitures. And you can think of this as a situation where it's a bigger company. Maybe it's General Electric or Amazon or you know anybody it really could be. And they have a business or a business unit or a product line within the company that for whatever reason, and we'll get into these reasons, they said, you know, this isn't part of our core. We should divest this business. And that's what I mean by a corporate divestiture, where there a bigger company is taking a portion of their business and selling it to a third party. That's awesome. And let's jump right into those reasons if that's the, if that's the next logical route that you want to go. Because I think with soup, what, what, one of the things I'm, I'm hoping is that the listeners can get a peer into the mindset of these these individuals and the stakeholders that are involved in this because it's so, you know, outside of the peripheral, you know, view or the, of the view, it's in the peripheral of a lot of the people that are listening in. So like, what are the reasons? Like, why would some, like, how do they come to the conclusion of we don't need this, especially when there's so much M&A activity going on where people are trying to acquire, how are they, how are they getting to those decisions? Well, what, what I first like to think about is, and I always want to step back and say, why do people buy and sell businesses Anyways, just generally. <laughs> great place to start. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and let's look at it a little bit from the corporate divestiture perspective. Really, if you're running a company, you have to make a lot of decisions around a lot of different things. One of those things is capital allocation. Where should you put your money and where should you put your time? And sometimes it says, you know, we're going to invest in this area because it's got a good potential return for it. But we have businesses in this area 
that don't have a good potential return. So those become the things that you think about divesting. And it's not always as clear cut as you might think. And I, I'll just give it, I, I try and give examples as we mm-hmm. go through this discussion today. Um, let's say you're a company that makes, and then this is a, this comes from an actual tra- transaction that I did that makes say really large industrial sewage systems. And you sell yeah. these things all around the world. And when you started doing this a hundred years ago, literally a hundred years ago, one of the important aspects of it was being able to make this part. Let's just call it part A. Mm-hmm. And so you set up a factory that made part A. And part A went into these bigger systems that get sold all over the world. Well, time time moves forward and you know it turns out that anybody can now, a hundred years later, make part A. It's not that hard to make part A. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make the big system. Mm-hmm. And further, you realize as a company that's making these big systems that get sold to municipalities, you've got a better chance of selling one of these systems to a municipality if you're buying something from that municipality. And I'm not talking about, you know, South Bend, Indiana. Yep. I'm talking about, you know, Vietnam, France, you know, all over the globe. So you make the decision to say, why don't we, instead of building Part A ourselves, source Part A locally all around the world, and that'll help us get more sales in that region, as an example. Oh, cool. Yeah. Totally tracking you. So that's an example of a company, and this is a transaction that I actually did, where we sold the business unit that made Part A. Super cool. So like, and, and I, I, you know, what, how you even started that story, John, I think is, is an, uh, capital allocation, time and, and money. Like in, and as we continue to have the mantra on the show and what we do is like view and run the company as an asset. So like bigger companies are always viewing it from that lens, right? They're not, it's just like how, like, where's the return on like the overall structure? So they're like looking at all the divisions through that lens, probably pretty rigorously. And so then how, like, what are the conversations internally? Who are those department heads that are having those conversations at this C-level suite? Like, you know, maybe it probably depends on the size of company too, but like, how are you having, how do those introductions happen? And are you facilitating those those conversations to get them to that conclusion or do they come to you and like, here's what we're doing. You said uh, there, as you were kind of doing the intro a little bit, that companies are having these discussions all the time about what they should be selling or not. And I hope they are, but I fear that many of them are not. It's, it's hard to step back and say, you know, we really don't need to be in that business anymore. <laughs> Let's sell it. But I will say the companies that do have those discussions, and this is going to get into a little bit of data that I've, that I've done some research on, the companies that do have those decisions or those discussions and are frequently, as I say, tuning, fine-tuning their portfolio of assets, those companies outperform other businesses. And when I say outperform, I'm talking literally about the stock performance of those companies. Mm-hmm. If you're what's what's referred to, it's a report by Bain and company. They do it every couple of years. If you're a um, company that frequently acquires businesses and divests businesses, those companies tend to get a higher rate of return than mm-hmm. companies that don't do that. Mm-hmm. And a higher rate of return than companies who make, say, one big acquisition and one big divestiture every couple of decades or every couple of years. Hmm. It's the ones that are the little little ones moving their portfolio back and forth all the time that tend to do really well. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. And like you said, it's probably a lot harder to practice that constant, mm-hmm. you know, re, uh, the repetition behind that. 
you, you, I, I caught the word that you mentioned of the portfolio of assets. So I want to pull that thread. Why don't you talk about like, what does that mean and how, what does it mean to view your company as, as a portfolio of assets? It, it, in some ways, it's really easy. You know, you have, like, say, the old General Electric. You've got the medical product area. You've got the jet engine area. You've got the turbine area. That's pretty clear. It's a portfolio of assets. Or other companies that are conglomerates like that. It's harder when you have businesses that are very similar to each other or maybe supplying each other or mm-hmm. maybe it's the end, uh, the, the way you go to the end market. To, to look at those as, oh, those are actually pieces that fit together in a puzzle but they don't necessarily have to be together in the puzzle. Maybe we can outsource, again, to use that example, mm-hmm. I have a part A. You know, we can buy part A. So I, I encourage executives to look at their business as kind of like almost the mutual fund. Mm-hmm. They're moving assets in and moving assets out based on what has a better or a higher expected rate of return. In you know what's super fascinating, John, is like I think a lot of people that I interact with in the privately held space – get that concept, but it's very difficult for people to do that because of how the data is all muddied up together. Cause like you'd say, okay, like when you talk about probably buy or not buy, uh, like the, the contractual relationships with vendors, like you were saying, like inner, inner company, like they're supplying, you know, the suppliers or manufacturers, you know, uh, supplying it to the distributor and like having all that clean and accurate to truly see what the hell's going on in that particular division to figure out even how to price accordingly, what do we need for this thing? And so I think it's interesting that like, it'd be like, do you find that when you're having these conversations, that data is very clear because of the size of companies that you're working with. So they understand like truly how to separate those puzzle pieces. No, it's frequently very unclear. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Like, well, that's good to know that we're all in the same world then. Right. (laughs) It's, it's tough, but now that's, that's the ones that do it are the ones that do well. Frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, how, go and keep go for it. Oh, uh, you um, you had asked about the type of divestitures, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I just, I just kind of want to hit on that a little bit. There's lots of different types. I'm trying to go to an old slide that I have, but w- the way we talked about that one example, it was sort of selling. In that case, it was a facility, and the facility just happened to make part A that got sold back to the parent company. Mm-hmm. The facility could make different parts for different people, different companies, different different customers, I guess you could call it. But there are situations where you've got big companies that do what's called a spin-out. And we that's it's a type of corporate divestiture. And so maybe you're a big company that's got all kinds of divisions, and you're just going to sell one division. And it is and always was a standalone business. So that's could be a spin-out. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you're a publicly traded company, you might just spin it out to your shareholders, but that's a different type of thing. Um, there's the whole idea of product line divestitures, which is a little bit of what we talked about mm-hmm. there, where, you know, it's part of the bigger business, but we don't, we don't want to be in that product line anymore. <laughs> it could be like product line or a supplier distributor. So business model and product line, you kind of, it was the example, of both of those, but it could be just a product line at the same time. Yeah, it could be just a product line. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, maybe we're a food manufacturer and we just happen to have, you know, a protein line of business, but we really want to focus on our vegetable line of business. So mm-hmm. you sell the protein line sort mm-hmm. of thing. And what else? Well, full business unit sales, as we talked about, sort of standalone type businesses. It's, and and the the different reasons, I mean, when you're thinking about, I'm kind of going back to the reasons someone would do that. Obviously, like, hey, performance, like your example is fantastic. And like that kind of popped up of like, kind of like, yep, makes sense. I have in maybe more maybe a debunking like I see a lot of times where it's like 
stock manipulation where like, I, I don't know if that plays into it. We're like, Hey, like we're, you know, we're, we're this is going to be our profits or this is going on. We need to have this spun out and we can then write it off against another division or whatever. Cause there's more like capital allocation and tax optimization too. I mean, I don't know how often that plays into effect or maybe not at all. I mean, I've just come across a couple of stories that I've heard like that. The honest answer from my perspective is I don't see that. People don't say, hey, we, you know, we need to divest this so we can write off some taxes. We don't, we don't, we don't tend to see that and we don't tend to be part of that discussion. Maybe a little bit related to it is we are very much, in, I shouldn't say involved in the discussion, but involved in the transactions where maybe a company has got way too much debt. And they mm. say, you know, we're concerned that our business is going to slow down and this debt's going to be a problem. So they divest the unit and use that cash to pay down the debt. Got it. That's and, not and, quite what you were talking about. Yeah, but that, that, those are situations that we see. And <laughs> frankly, those are not always the funnest. We had one where they said, <laughs> they said, uh, we've got to get this transaction done in 89 days or 90 days because we've got to pay some debt down. And we'd never done a deal that fast, but we got it done in 89 days. Um, for, a, for $105 million. Much, so, go for it. Go for it. Much rather take, uh, oh, I don't know, six months and do it right. And, you know, but it, it worked for everybody in that case. Oh, uh, I can only imagine some of the conversations during that process. Um, but what, 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 why that was super helpful, John. So, like, one of the things that we talk a lot about is if, so the, Dave Deal, when he went, him and I were on about the last pep, uh, episode, it was like growing intrinsic value based on the risk of the cash flow. It's like something that a company can control. And then when you're selling the business, valuations will you know go way up or down depending on the purpose of the deal. So like starts at that financial valuation, but it might get a strategic premium because of whatever reasons or a discount because of whatever reasons. But part of that process, John, is like for for the seller to understand why the buyer wants to buy your company. Or why Absolutely. they want, and so like one of the things that I think is fascinating is that you talk about that debt situation with that you know the the, the big corporation, or they're divesting in it for the reason you talk about in the, the case study. It's very, I, I find it hard. I find it that people have a hard time. Like, what are what's the enormous spectrum of reasons that this deal is happening, and like it's so wide that like. Yeah. Because then, then you can figure out what does this mean for the buyer and the seller. Unless we know, it's difficult to understand. So I think it's interesting because, like, in that example of the debt situation, what would have happened if you guys wouldn't have sold? So what did that actual sale to them mean because of well, that circumstance? Well, it could have meant a couple of things. Uh, the lender to that parent company could have uh, put them in foreclosure and you know closed the business down. Um, or at least called the loan, which would have been a big problem for them. I suspect they wouldn't have done that. They would have worked with them to try and find a way out of it, but they didn't. Let me keep going on what you were just saying there, because yeah. we had a situation that, you know, I, I, I should say, I, I often say I love talking about these situations. I suppose it's the ones that I don't talk about that I don't love talking about, so I don't <laughs> talk about them. But, but this, <laughs> this was a situation where um, I, I call it a mini conglomerate. The company was, you know, Maybe it was four hundred million of revenue. The parent company, so kind of a mid-sized company, but it was made up of about six or eight different businesses. And they hired us to sell one business. It was roughly a seventy million dollar revenue business, but not very profitable. <clears throat> Excuse me. When the parent company had bought it, it was losing money, and they did a great job of turning it around as best as they could. But you know, they had constrained resources. They just weren't that big. Mm -hmm. um, so they brought us in to sell it, and I think it might have been well. Let's just say it had very low margins when we got brought in to sell it. We ended up selling it to a private equity firm that is experts at taking 
good businesses and making them great businesses. And they actually had done that exact same thing on a company that looked very similar to the one we were selling. Hmm. So not only did they know how to turn companies around, they know how to turn this company around. So they paid a price that we thought was unbelievably high. We thought, how in the world are they going to make any money on this? They came in, they made a bunch of bunch of changes, um, which improved the business. But they also got lucky because th then there was a really high net worth individual who wanted a factory that did exactly what that factory did. So they owned it for 18 months and sold it for two and a half times the, what they paid for. It. <laughs> so they made a ton of money. We sold it for a lot more than we thought we'd be able to sell it for, all because this company continued to get put to better and higher uses. Super great story. And I think like the, the theme underneath that is there's the purpose of the deal that is on top. Like it's like this, it's part of the recipe when you have this intrinsic financial value, but then depending on who's owning it and running it, they can do different things with it, which will make more sense for each individual owner. And what I think is super interesting about all like these type of conversations too, John, is when we were having our, our kind of our prep call is like a lot of, a lot of the listeners in here their company works with divisions of these bigger companies too. So some of the things that you and I had talked about is like, first of all, it's important to know what the hell's going on with your suppliers or manufacturers or customers who you're working with. Because I think a lot of times, like all of those things that we're talking about from conglomerates and buying and selling the M&A of the portfolio businesses, you know, the, uh, a small business might only get like only work with their customer or their suppliers. They don't know what's going on at the C-suite of these companies. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the, their interaction with their clients or vendors are impacted by those discussions, even though they might have a ripple effect down the road of how that all shows up. So that's the first uh, comment. The second comment is that when you and I were talking prior to this, is like there might be an opportunity for a privately held business to be at the buyer table of these two to take their Absolutely. company to the next Absolutely, level too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and and they might be the ones that are nimble and know how to fix things and make things better, or have the time and inclination to go into new markets with the assets that the, that the old company had, but wasn't using in those areas. Yeah. So who are the different types of buyers typically then? So you mentioned a private equity firm, but who are you like, where are you finding buyers for these divestitures? There are in, in the general answer to your question. So outside of private equity or outside of corporate divestitures, I look at the world really as having two types of acquirers for businesses. And maybe it's simplistic, but then there's a lot of subtypes within there. The two types being financial buyers, which are either a private equity firm or a high net worth family, family mm -hmm. office, let's call mm -hmm. it. In other words, they're buying the business primarily for a financial return, primarily, not, not exclusively. And then there are strategic acquirers. And I define strategic acquirers are oper as operating companies that are looking to operate more companies. Mm. And I did it that way very generally because a strategic acquirer might, might be in exactly the line of business of the business you're selling, or it might not be. But I still think of them as strategic acquirers. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly right, but the, uh, what is it? The Washington Post I saw once bought a heater company. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought, why in the world did they do that? But I would, and I never did figure out why, and but they did. Um, so, because businesses that, make that money, man, and they grow yeah. in value. And I, I, I'm assuming that there was some sort of like, hey, more EBITDA, more share price value growth, and, and whatever it might have been. Um, I I might be off on that a little bit, but it was, but, but you'll see these 
oddball acquisitions, but I can still I still consider them strategic acquirers. Got it. So yep. with it, but but let's come back to private equity. You said what kind of buyers that or what 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 are, what are the different types of buyers? Private equity 30, 40 years ago was kind of the boogeyman and it was the Wild West. I, I want to be really clear in all the discussions I have, this one included, private equity buyers can be some of the best buyers of businesses out there. Um, they're very professional. This is the world they're in. They know what they're doing. They value their reputation. And they've frankly got a lot of money to put to work. But even more importantly, or maybe as importantly, private equity firms have realized over the last few decades that they're not going to make money through financial engineering. And they're not going to make money just by cutting headcount and cutting expenses. They come in even, even as much as a strategic acquirer, probably. And they say, we're going to buy a business and we're going to do things to make it better. And that's not a um, indictment on the previous owner that they didn't do those things. They were just busy doing other stuff, maybe. Or so, even a and, perfect handoff. I mean, like you can get to a point where like an owner just says, I've done everything to this point that was that should have been done, but I'm just done. Like, here's the baton. I mean, it could just yeah. be that simple, too. Yeah. Now, this example that I'll run through here isn't a corporate divestiture. It was a private company sale, but it's a but it's a it's a good example. <clears throat> um Again, this was a this was a privately held company. The guy literally started the company in his garage. I mean, it was actually started in his garage with one piece of equipment making this medical device component. So just a little twelve dollar component that goes into a forty thousand dollar device. Yep. But if you don't have that component, you can't sell the forty thousand dollar device. So they had one factory. They they graduated from the garage, had one factory, and it was in California, not far from a um, um, earthquake fault, and. When we were talking to the buyers, they said, well, how do we get more business with our big customers? And, you know, the Medtronic, Boston Scientific, those companies. They said, well, you know, they don't want to give us any more business because if something happens to our factory, that can really impact their ability to sell this product. So, you know, we don't want to build another factory because we're sitting here making good money and we're happy and everything's good. So we're just going to keep it as it is. And, of course, the buyer, light bulb goes off in their head, I'm buying this company and I'm setting up another factory, and then I'm going back to the customers to get more business. They bought it. They did exactly that. Hmm. Um, so it, it ended up being an absolute home run for the family that sold the business because they retained part of it. And when that part they retained got sold later, mm -hmm. it was worth as much as the, the main business to start with. And um, so it was you know, absolute home run for the buyer, for the family and everyone involved. Um, and it's a great example of a PE firm saying, we're going to make the investments in this business because we have a higher risk tolerance than a family who's doing just perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to take on that risk. So it went from family business to private equity for a period of time to then the corporation that then was able to, is that, was I following I, that? I think it actually spent, two, went to two or three different private equity firms, but now it's part of a bigger corporation. It, it's super helpful, John, because like I think one of the things that, like the lens that has made the lens that has helped me make sense of the whole M&A marketplace over the last five, 10 years is like everybody that's involved in this is trying to grow their business and create more cash flow and equity growth. Like that's it. So like if as long as like when you're having these conversations, you meaning the hypothetical you is like, where do I fit in that puzzle piece based on the players that are in front of me? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, cause like everything you just talked about, like makes sense. And I think a lot of the listeners in here go like, yeah, that makes sense. But trying to uncover that narrative is difficult. 
So how did like is how does someone figure out where this action's happening if like a privately held company wants to buy one or get involved? Like how do you how does that narrative uh, maybe it's just talking to someone like you? Does the question make sense? Well, let's let's frame that back within the uh, corporate divestiture, which is part of what this discussion really is. It, it, it is incumbent upon the executives, and we could be talking executives of hundred billion or you know fifty billion dollar companies or you know hundred million dollar companies to say, are there aspects of our portfolio of businesses that we should consider divesting? And other things that we should consider acquiring. Mm-hmm. Now, that's really hard because they're busy making decisions about personnel uh, in the last couple of years, how to operate during a pandemic, real estate, all these different things. But I, I would say this is one of the things that also needs to be on your plate mm-hmm. um, as an executive. If you're unsure about the ability to, uh, can, can I get this thing sold? Ask somebody, ask us. We'll be happy to talk to you about it. <laughs> And, um, you know, I've got two or three on my desk here where, frankly, they came and they asked. And our answer is can't help you for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll give you the honest answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I would much rather say I can help you and here's how we're going to do it. (laughs) But, you know, we've got to give the honest answer. So when when you're looking at um, someone – Honestly, either on the acquisition side, so like these the, the bigger companies that you're talking about, the the on the acquisition side or the divestiture side, in and that if I'm pulling on a thread that doesn't really exist, you could just go ahead and tell me. But like oh, I've had <laughs> exactly cut the cut the invisible thread that I'm trying to grasp at. So the uh, uh, there's been a couple of people on the on the podcast, John, that that they were investment. One was an actual, and uh, he was uh, the head of corporate development. So for the listeners, the M and A division of one of the bigger companies, and then uh, he became an investment banker. And then there was another gentleman that uh, kind of plays in the space and. Both of them, his name is Ted uh, Schluter, and then I uh, can't remember the. Oh my god, mind blank on the other podcast. But the point is, is there was there was very micro situations going on where the executive at the firm was like, "My bonus is based on like this division and the crap that's going on," and they had lost two bids. So he's like, "I'm going to pay whatever I need to pay because I need it for the company strategy and my personal bonus along with their team." So there was like truly like really nuanced things kind of driving the deal and both of those episodes there was kind of like an underlying story there that like it's kind of just like there's the corporate strategy but then there's the individuals that are just people right that yeah. that have bonus plans and comp plans and stock options we're like it's kind of trying to the, the thread that i was pulling is like what's the purpose of the deal and like these are just nuanced things that actually are real and i think it's just so basic that people kind of don't put a lot of merit on it but i'm like that drove the whole deal (laughs) like the numbers for that guy was or gal was just you know they're selling a 70 million dollar division or buying an 80 million dollar one and the division's actually 10 billion so it means nothing to them but it's generational wealth for you so there's like this mismatch of reality and perspective perspectives but it's just another human being doing a job and i don't know if i'm like i said you can cut the thread or like i don't know provide some context or color to it it, it reminds me of one of the discussions I had in grad school with our professor, um, or I don't know, but he said something along the lines of, when you have interactions, you're not interacting with ABC Corporation. Mm-hmm. You're interacting with a person who works for ABC Corporation. <laughs> Never great. forget that it's people that make these decisions. But 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 coming back to the bigger, I think part of what you were saying there is that um, it's important when a corporation sets up their comp system 
to make sure that it can't be manipulated in ways that you don't want it manipulated. Mm -hmm. Uh, That might not quite sound right, but if if your goal as a corporation, unless you're a B corporation, it should be your goal is to maximize shareholder value. Lots of ways to do that. And so you want your people to make sure that they're doing it. They're they're doing things to maximize shareholder value. Mm -hmm. Um, We could get off in all kinds of tangents about what right ways to maximize shareholder value are. But, but I think I'm you, kind of you, you yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm a Milton Friedman guy, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> in, in, you, you, your, your story <laughs> about the uh, people are people. I think that was just perfect, perfect way to put it because that you name the company, their their incentives, whether they're right or wrong, are driving the people, and you're having a conversation mm-hmm. with a person. So I think it was very, very insightful. How are these like the pricing of the value? whether they're divesting or acquiring, like how, like maybe walk us through how they're thinking about value. Like how are they approaching the valuations when they're divesting of these, like in thinking about it is in terms of why they need to divest of it. Are they looking to the open market and comps talking to you? How do they, how do they get to that conclusion? Well, I'm glad you brought that up in the context of the discussion that we just had, because I want to give an example of a situation. We were working on a divestiture for, let's just say it was a very, very large Japanese company wasn't Toyota, but it was that size company, okay? And the divestiture was so small. And at one point, I, I was uh, I was saying to them, you know, heck, we, we could push in this area, push in this area to get a little more value. And the guy finally said to me, he's, he's become a good friend, and we've remained friends for 10 years. He said, John, the value doesn't matter. The only thing that matters here is that we get this deal done and we have no liabilities going forward. And I, well, holy moly. And this is a $40 billion company. And the divestiture was maybe a, I don't know, it was a really small $5 million divestiture. But to to the right matter. of the decimal point of everything else that's going on. Exactly. <laughs> so it was important for me to realize, oh, that's right. You know, I'm so used to trying to maximize shareholder value. But his goal was to minimize legacy liabilities. So that enabled us to structure the transaction in a whole different way so that the buyer then, now the buyer was a small business. This mattered to them. Mm-hmm. So they were able to get a good deal from, from their perspective. The seller was able to get a good deal from their perspective, but the valuation was just a secondary concern. <laughs> and, and at one point, this is a little bit of a tangent, um, there was a supplier to this business that was being very difficult in, in, in the negotiations. And I said to them, I said, why don't we just crush them? You know, we can we can tell them they're cut off. We're going to go somewhere else and supply, you know, and buy this stuff. They said, you know, here in Japan, and I might have this a little bit wrong, and I don't mean to put an entire nation into one category, but he said, we live on an island, and um, it's pretty crowded here because a lot of our island is mountain. You can't live there. So it's important for us that we learn to have harmony and kind of get along with each other. That's a Japanese culture in general. I'd say that's a yeah. And so experience. they said we're the lion here, and they're a little rabbit. We could just swat them if we wanted to, but that's not the way we want to operate. So, anyways, important. No, that's a good that's kind of my example of important to know what the people making the decision really are looking for. Which is super helpful. So again, I, I think the as I'm continuing to track this conversation, is the nuances are so important to understand really what is the purpose and the intentions of everybody at this deal table. So if someone maybe here more of a general question, how many of the out of the deals that you do, John, are super nuanced 
like this is how they're pricing these versus like discounted cash flow market comps. All of them are super nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> All. So helpful, John, because again, yeah. it just continues to like, because here's, here's what I, here's the, the, I, the philosophy I keep uh, preaching is if it's a financial value, you can almost pre-engineer the valuation if your expectations are in line. But if you're going to like, you know, whether you know, for your ESAP division, right? People can grow value, sustainable, predictable, transferable value. They can monetize the asset and it's a financial value. Like you said, like a financial buyer. And then you have the third party sales and it's like, it's, all in the nuances. There are there is a financial value, but the nuances are so darn important in that conversation. Otherwise, you're kind of like mismatched for the conversation of how to even determine that value. Um, well, as we say, we let the market determine the value, but we give the market the information it needs to determine the value from their perspective, which is also to say we push them very hard to come up with their best offer. What are these? What are these corporations looking at for like deal structures, John? Is it like give me all cash? Because I'm assuming a corporation doesn't want an earnout or something like that. So like, how are like what are the typical deal structures? I'm going to come back to that question, but I want okay. to kind of give an example from a discussion I had last night with somebody, and this is important where it's really understanding what the buyers are looking for and the sellers are needing to achieve. This this and this is a real estate question, so it's not a deal question so much, you know, in my world. But this company was looking to get out of their lease. Uh, the spot just didn't fit them anymore. And they realized, wow, that's a million dollar payment we have to make to get out of this lease early. And they're like, oh, I, you know, it's tax deductible. Let's go ahead and do it. And like the next day, they get a phone call from this big company whose name everybody would know that says, you know, we're looking for some more space um, and you've got exactly what we're looking for. Um, we'll, we'll pay you a million and a half dollars to take over your lease. And they're like, Okay, <laughs> so they, well, it's 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 important to see you know what all the different perspectives are out there. Uh-huh. And before that, I mentioned that all deals are nuanced. Earlier in this discussion, we talked about the company that was over levered; they had too much debt. They needed they needed to get a deal done to pay down the debt. Mm-hmm. That had to be an all cash deal at close, mm-hmm. and it had to be done with a party that we were confident would have the cash at, cl- at close. So, pretty straightforward there. Mm-hmm. The small Japanese divestiture that I talked about, again, money didn't matter to them. Because it was the liabilities that they wanted to get rid of. So I'm, I'm assuming they wanted yeah. to sell the stock, get rid of that entity or whatever the hell was going on so they could limit their liabilities was the main concern. Yeah. So we had this whole – I had this whole structure all t- talked about where it was going to be, you know, earn out based on EBITDA or revenue growth and all these kinds of things. And they're like, just go back to them and find out how much cash they have available and we'll take it. So <laughs> – so for, for them, it was, you know, it, it, it had to be all cash, but it had to be done, had to be done with no liabilities. Right, right. So um, go ahead. They, they usually, corporations usually want cash. I was going to say, man, like, I like I can't imagine like the, a division of a bigger company being like, hey, we're going to do an earn out with this and that and getting all pretty. They're like, no, like this has got to be pretty straightforward. Just my thought or like yeah. maybe, maybe a seller financing if, if possible. I mean, I don't know if you see that. Yeah, on, on the bigger deals, again, we we work on the call of 100 million and below. Sometimes it's bigger than that, but in that range. Mm-hmm. Um, on those, you tend to not see a lot of structure. Um, structure meaning, you know, earnouts or seller mm-hmm. financing or something like that. But on, on, on the bigger deals, you do see that sometimes. Maybe, uh, I think it was GE sold a division. I'm losing track of it. But they retained 48% ownership of the division because mm. um, yeah. the buyer yeah. just couldn't, just couldn't, afford to buy the whole thing. So that's the way they structured it. 
Super cool. Is there a, like thinking more and, and if you if you can put a pin in this question if you got uh, if you got a couple other topics you want to cover prior but like my my question like on the kind of the macro trends of where we're headed John is you know with a lot of corporate debt that's been just consumed and gobbled up over the last handful of years and I and I know there's been a lot of free money floating around too is do you see I'm trying to think of how to articulate this do you see more corporate divestitures in the future where there could be an opportunity for privately held businesses that are, or the smaller private equity firms that are looking to take advantage of maybe some better prices or people that are like trying to, you know, right size their infrastructure and stuff. So like kind of a one, two part question is like, do you see more divestitures or is there maybe more acquisitions because of the slower growth period that we're getting into with higher um, higher interest rates where these corporations want to then do more inorganic growth. So like, it's almost like, what do you see more of be, be kind of based on the conversations you've been having and the trends? Um, I, I would like to think, um, and it's, it sounds self-serving because a little bit of it is, but I would like to think that corporations would continue to and even increase their um, frequency of saying, how do we right size our, our portfolio of businesses, mm-hmm. which is to say, close things down, divest things, yep. maybe acquire things. Um, that comes back to the whole discussion at the beginning of viewing your company as a portfolio of assets, mm-hmm. that you have to manage that portfolio and be investing in things that have a high rate of return or at least a higher rate of return than your cost of capital and be divesting things that have a lower rate of return than your cost of capital Mm -hmm. or things that occupy a lot of your mind and people and you just don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to see that. And I think one of the reasons that it can continue to go that way is because there is so much other money waiting to be invested, Mm -hmm. the private equity money. Mm -hmm. There is somewhere around a trillion dollars of equity waiting to be invested. And that's only half of the story because a PE firm tends to buy a company with about nowadays half debt, half equity. So it's $2 trillion of purchasing purchasing power. Yeah, right, 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 right. Wouldn't it be great if all these businesses, all these big companies that had units that are inefficient or not core put more effort into getting that in the hands of some person or organization that's going to work hard to make it better. And amen, I, amen, John. I like, honestly, I, I, I hope in, cause I don't have any dog in the fight for that one, but like, I, I agree with you because I've watched, you know, you know, shareholder value. I think it, I, I track you. It's just shareholder value. That's actually based on freaking cash flow, not stock manipulation. <laughs> so like I have watched over the last five to 10 years, man, like people doing things with their companies, like the bigger corporations that are public. And you're like, dude, you're just manipulating your stock price. So that they're buying these different entities and like inflating their stock for whatever bonuses they got to your point. And they would, I would love to see the return of these acquisitions, the actual return. Cause I think, I think there was a stat that I saw out there, John, that 80% of acquisitions never uh, exceed their cost of capital. I'm sorry. They, they generally 
it's generally more expensive to buy a company than just using your own capital that you could use to borrow off of because they don't integrate it correctly. It's so off from what, what they were doing. And I think we've just seen even more of that. And now, and now we're starting to see J&J is trying to break up. Like there, there's people, EY is trying to break up. So you're seeing these people going like, what the hell are we doing? Like we need to make money at the things we're good at. So there's, I'm starting to see the bigger companies trend. And I could be wrong, but I'm just, just kind of like my you know, observations from the wall street journal and some of the bigger publications, but it's interesting watching then people then say, okay, we actually don't, what business are we in? And I think there's more of that now than, Hey, we should be a holding company of everything. The uh, comment that you made earlier about 80% of acquisitions mm-hmm. don't add value. Let's say, and I'm not sure if that's exactly the number I've heard. Me neither. It was number, an but, anecdotal comment that I heard from someone. But if you put yourself in the seat of the corporate executive, or, you know, the line executives who have to make decisions about, am I going to go build a plant? Am I going to hire these people? Am I going to put a million dollars into or a hundred million dollars, whatever it is, into a marketing campaign? What are these things? You have to make these decisions. And let's just say if your only two choices were to buy a business or to spend more marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the old adage about marketing? Half, half of your advertisement is useless. The other half is great. You just don't know which half is which. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so th- there's a lot of situations where you've got to make decisions with imperfect information. Mm-hmm. And Fair enough. Yeah, it's not, it's not an easy decision. It's not clear. Yeah. And what is clear is that the companies that make that are actively managing their portfolio, and I've used this term, what, a half a dozen times on this call, buying businesses that fit, and that accentuate what they have and divesting things that don't, those companies tend to outperform in the stock market. And they don't outperform because they're active buyers and sellers of businesses, I don't believe. They outperform because because the fact that they're active buyers and sellers makes the underlying business a better business and it generates more cash flow for lower risk. Yeah, they've got the right intentions the whole time, right? They they'd actually focus on the things that are actually growing value and just constantly tweaking the machine instead of just hoping that like what they did was the right choice. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I know we're getting close to the, the wrap up here, John. I mean, I know you do these presentations quite a bit. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to make sure that we cover? Well, I'm actually looking at some notes that I wrote down here. There's a whole section of topics that, that, that we won't go into here, but I'll just say that when you're doing a corporate divestiture, um, there's all these considerations that frequently don't come into play in a company sale. So if, if you're going to do a corporate divestiture, make sure you have a team that is knowledgeable about the specific things that happen within a divestiture. Just as an example, when you're separating a business unit, maybe the, the company that's being sold or the unit that's being sold might not have all of the things that a normal company has, like a phone system, HR, an IT, HR, payroll. HR <laughs> financial statements. So there are a lot of things that you have to keep track that you have to think about in a corporate divestiture that you don't have to think about um, nearly as much in a regular company sale. So, I mean, great point. And I think also, like, I know that that significantly impacts the price that people want to trade on because, like, are we including all that infrastructure or not, right? I'm assuming the buyer will dictate, well, do you need to account for that or do they also have that or you can just bolt it on? I mean, I'm assuming you're having those conversations quite a bit. Or do we go out and find someone that can supply it to us? Yeah, Yeah, all kinds of questions. And they're all different for every transaction. There's some fundamental things, but things vary quite a bit, yeah. 
That's awesome, John. Well, I'll tell you what, I very much enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I usually wrap up with two questions. Uh, the, the first one is best place to find you, Prairie. What's the what's the best place? Yeah, so we're Prairie Capital Advisors, as I think we said at the beginning. Uh, the website is prairiecap.com. Um, and there is a private equity firm named Prairie Capital, so make sure you get the right one. Wendy has corrected yeah. me on that before, so thank you, Wendy. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. There was a second question. What, what and was the- so I, I love to hear what uh, people's definition of intentional is, John, because it's the name of the show. And uh, when we renamed the the podcast like three years ago or something like that, I've been asking everybody and people's definitions and how different they are. is just uh, a very personal enjoyment, a personal kick of mine. So any thoughts of what the word de- uh, intentional means for you? Well, sometimes people kind of just sit back and let things happen. The old French laissez-faire. Um, and... It, I think intentional has to do with saying, okay, what is the domain that I'm operating within? How do I get the knowledge, develop the knowledge and the skill sets to operate within that domain, then set a goal and travel down that path to get there within the domain knowledge. So oh, come wow. down to a lot that was of awesome. What I, I call it. domain knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. The opposite of laser. <laughs> I love that. That's the awesome. I, yeah. I've always tried to figure out what's the opposite of an intentional. It's like chaotic. And I truly, I've just not ever landed on something. So I think uh, you just filled that gap, man. I love it. <laughs> I exp- expanded our French. <laughs> yes. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I very much appreciated it. Well, Ryan, I really appreciated this too. I uh, Hopefully people found it interesting. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. And um look forward to continuing our discussion. You gave us a view inside of the mindsets that a lot of people don't get exposure to. So it's very, very helpful. Wonderful. Thank you, man. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John. What an interesting perspective. And I just love the fact that we can break it down and demystify things that are happening every day. People talking about value creation. What is the share price? What is the equity growth of my business? Whether it's an employee who's trying to sell a division of a bigger corporation or whether it's you trying to grow the value of your company, it's the name of the game. And by understanding that this corporate divestiture world exists, I think it can help everybody listening in to seize opportunities or to avoid catastrophe if there's a divestiture of a company going on that you are highly reliant on. It's going to impact your business and or if you get your stuff together and you get your financials built and you understand where you're at right now, you could maybe buy one of these companies if they don't care about the price and you can bolt it onto yours and actually have a creative value creation right off the bat. So interesting to just pay attention to regardless. And my suggestion would be is that if this stuff interests you, go check out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp. It's at arcona.io. It's 5,000 bucks. It's for two days, May 11th and 12th of, uh, May 11th and 12th in Orlando, Florida at Rollins College. Wonderful for partners, for team members and executives to get on the same page. And the goal is to clarify the target equity valuation and figure out how you're going to go get there, balancing the reinvestment versus versus taking the money out and making sure that's all tied to the long-term plan. So go check it out, arcona.io. And I appreciate everybody tuning in and I will see you next week.